We've been studying the sixth parak of Yeshua, Perik Vav. These are the instructions that Akash Baruch gave Yeshua for the conquest of Yericho, the special procedure of marching around Yericho with the Shofaros, the Kohanim, the Shofaros. And on the seventh day, the whole people would cry out, Tariu. Uh, on, on, on that last day, the, until that last day, they would be no sound, no, no anything until the last day. When I tell you on that last day, the seventh day, I'll tell you, and then you cry out, and then the walls were going to, uh, the walls were going to collapse. And it describes that they did that. They, they, they began the seven-day procedure of circling Yericho, one circle, one circuit every one of the seven days, and on the seventh day, seven circuits. And the, the, the Navi describes it. Yes? What do they do the rest of the day? <laughs> what do they do the rest of the day? I, I don't know how big Yericho was and how long it took to walk around Yericho. It might have taken half an hour, it might have taken several hours, but what do they do the rest of the day? It's a good question. We, we learned earlier in the end of the last parak that according to, according to the Gemara, according to Chazal, Yoshua was, was, was criticized by the Malach, by Hashem, for not studying Torah during the Mulchama. And they apparently thought they were busy with, uh, with the war, even when they weren't fighting. But the answer was, Rashi says, at night, you can't really fight at night. So you should be... Uh, the rest of the day. You can't really fight at night. So you should be learning Torah. Maybe the rest of the day they learned Torah. Maybe the rest of the day they, they trained. They, 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 they were going to do some actual fighting as well. After the, after the walls collapsed, they were going to go into the city and engage, I guess, in hand-to-hand fighting. So... Maybe they had to practice the other drills, like, like all, all militaries do. They, they drill, they, they, they train. Hard to know what they did. It's a good question. And we, we, we don't know how long it took to go around Eureka. We don't know how fast they walked, how big Eureka was, so it's hard to know how much free time they had. Okay. Anyway, so they did this, and then it says that the Bahiba Yama Shvi, the seventh day, the climax of this procedure, in Pasuk Tezvav, it says they did this, on the, they went seven times around, Pasuk Tezayin, that the, the seventh time, the Quran blew the Shafaris, Yeshua said, Hariu, he told the nation, El Ha'am, Hariu, cry out, Kinasan Hashem Lachem Hashem has now given the city into your hands. So, we, 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 we've been mentioning the last week or two that there is a great debate as to whether the, whether the, the conquest of Yericho involved Chilo Shabbos. So, the Chazal, the Yushalmi, the Rambam, many commentaries say, Rashi brings it, that the conquest of Yericho occurred the seventh day with Shabbos. Seventh, when it says the seventh day, they did this, it doesn't, ju- it doesn't just mean the seventh of the seven-day program. It means the seventh day of the week, meaning the seventh day of the actual battle, which would have involved Chil Shabbos, war, is occurred on Shabbos. And this was, uh, even though normally we don't do things like this on Shabbos, but this was, this was mutter, this was mutter on Shabbos. We mentioned that Rav Sadia Gon said that no, they didn't fight on Shabbos. That 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 Rav Sadia was apparently responding to a Rav Sadia was apparently responding to a Karite, uh, some kind of sectarian heretical criticism that, that the Jews never really kept the Torah. They did what they wanted. They, they, the Torah was never really followed. Look, they fought on Shabbos. Rav Sadia says no, they didn't fight on Shabbos. They, the Shabbos was one of the earlier days of the seven days where all they did was march around and there was no Chil Shabbos. On the seventh day, where they actually, where they actually uh, fought, that was not Shabbos. But, but that's a minority opinion. Rosadi himself may have been, may have been, this, this may have just been uh, an attempt to, uh, this, 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 this may have been just an attempt to get the Karaim off his back. But the, 
according to according to most according to most most of our tradition, they fought they fought even on Shabbos. The and again there, there was apparently a Karite view that, that Jews are not allowed to fight on Shabbos. We find in the we find in the in the writings of a Chacham named Pirkoi ben Baboy. Pirkoi ben Baboy, an interesting name, not common today. Uh, he was a he was a student of the Gaonim. And, uh, he was a he, li- he lived a uh, lived a long time ago, a thousand, thousand you know, twelve, thirteen hundred years ago. He was one of the our tradition, one of the observant uh, believers in rabbinic Judaism, and he was he wrote a long he's famous for writing a long polemic against the a long a long polemic against the Karaites, so trying to refute the sectarian uh, heretical beliefs of the Karaites. And he writes that uh, no, we, we do fight on Shabbos. Apparently, the Karaites believe that, uh, you, that they were hardline fundamentalists. We, we, we think today we're used to the idea today that the Reform Judaism, the, the more liberal, progressive branches of Judaism, are generally more lenient. They're, they're less rigorous interpretations of Judaism. They don't require all the meticulousness, observance of all the halacha. It's kind of a more uh, more flexible and gentler. Uh, you know, besides all the theology involved in practice, the reform or conservative Judaism is a less rigorous, less strict form of Judaism. And that, that's true today. But historically, the, the sectarian movements were not always less strict. In some, way, in some ways they were, but in some ways they were much more strict. The Karaites in some ways were, were fanatics about their, uh, their, their biblical literalism, their, their fundamentalism. They, they, they took their religion very seriously, and in some ways they were actually much more strict than we were. But the famous example is that the Karaites did not have did not allow any fire burning in their homes on Shabbos. They, the, 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 they, 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 they wouldn't have any hot food. There's a famous medieval tradition that, that Cholent, the reason we have hot food on Shabbos Day, where we, we, we try to do that, is because we want to show that we reject the Karite approach. According to the Karites, all the food on Shabbos morning would have been cold. Friday night, you could have warm food that was left in a closed oven, maybe, but uh, Shabbos morning, there was no choice. You couldn't have a fire burning, so you couldn't, uh, all the food was cold. We believe, the, the Gemara on Shabbos says, that as long as you light the fire before Shabbos, you can let it burn on Shabbos. We light Shabbos candles 20 minutes before Shabbos, and they burn for a few hours into Shabbos. We, we, leave, uh, we, leave a crock, <coughs> we leave a crock pot on, we leave a, a stove on, whatever we do, we believe that that's okay. So, so some, some of the medieval Rishonim said that, that, that we do that to show that we disagree with the Karaites. And someone who doesn't eat hot food on Shabbos morning, we suspect, we have to inquire whether he's doing it because he doesn't like hot food doesn't like Jolent, he'd rather have salad, or because he, he's suspect of harboring uh, sectarian leanings. As a matter of fact, some go even further, some suggest that the reason the, the rabbis, one of the, the reason, or one of the reasons the rabbis instituted the, 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 the custom of lighting Shabbos candles, there are a number of reasons, it's covered Shabbos and so on, one of the reasons is to, to show that we reject the Karite interpretations, and we believe that uh, we believe that fire is allowed on Shabbos as long as it was kindled before Shabbos. In some ways, uh, they were also less strict in other ways. I think, but yes, the, the Karaites in some ways were more. Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I, I think the Karaites were, were lenient in other things that we were strict about, you know, because in general that they rejected. It's an, it's an oversimplification, but, but they seem to have been biblical literalists in some ways, so that they tended to stick to the, 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 the text of the Torah without the rabbinic interpretations. So for, but they had a philosophy. I mean, they conservative and referred to it. They just you know, don't want to do it because it's too much trouble. 
Yeah, so you, you, you always have to debate the, the official philosophy and then the, the underlying philosophy. So, so the, the reformer conservative, for example, they, they, they profess theological beliefs that they don't believe that the, they don't believe in the, the tradition or they don't believe in the Mount Sinai. They, they don't believe in the they have theological beliefs. Underlying it might be a, an unwillingness to live as traditional Jews. There's a famous Gemara. The Gemara says that when that going back to biblical Israel, it says when when the when the Jews worshipped idols. The reason they did it was because they wanted uh, they, they wanted the license for sexual permissiveness. That even though the Avodah was in some sense theological, but under, underlying it was it was a desire to throw off the yoke of Torah and mitzvahs and live like uh, uninhibited, uh, uninhibited. And it goes today as well. A, a lot of the rejection of traditional Western morality they reject the the classic conservative notions of you know, right and wrong and evil. But they also you know, the sexual revolution, and it also comes with a kind of uh, a license to live as you want and to uh, the only real judge of I'm the only judge of what's right and wrong and so on yeah so there's always theology and philosophy mixed together with uh, desire and uh, how I want to live my life yeah but the Karaites were, were not, not strictly more or less strict they were very strict in some ways they were I think less strict in other ways and they were just different one of the most famous aspects of Karaite theology where they differ from ours is the, when they celebrate Shavuos the Torah says that you bring the carbon omer mi machras shabbos. Right. The, the Torah says that the carbon omer was brought mi machras shabbos, the day after shabbos, and you count fifty days and you celebrate shavuos. We understand that, according to the Gemara, at great length. We understand that shabbos here refers to the first day of Pesach, the Yom Tov, rather than the normal use of shabbos. And we, and we start counting Sfiras Omer the second day of Pesach, the night of the second seder, which is the second day of Pesach. We count fifty days and we celebrate shavuos. The Karaites believed. The Tadukim, the Tadukim, who were an earlier version of, of that kind of thinking, and later the Karaites, they believe that Shabbos literally means Shabbos, the, the Sabbath, the seventh day, Saturday. They always start, they, they start counting the Omer from the Sunday after the first Saturday after the beginning of Pesach. So they have Shavuos typically a few days later than a few days later than, than we do. That's, that's, that's not a Chumro or a Kula, that's just different. That's just a different uh, interpretation. Even today, the, the Karaites are a shadow of their formal self. They still, have, they, they still have an organization called uh, Yadut Karait Olamet, a worldwide uh, Karait jury. They have a website, and one of the, one of the prominent uh, articles on the website is a, is a long explanation of why the correct day to celebrate Shavuos is on a Sunday, is on seven Sundays after the first Sunday after the Pesach, and not, as our brethren, the rabbinates, believe, 50 days after the, from the second day of Pesach. So they, they, they're they still out there. There's still a few of them left who are still defending this idea. But in general, they, they were just different. In some ways, they were more strict. In some ways, they were less strict. In some ways, they were, they were just different. So the Karaites apparently believed that war on Shabbos was illegitimate. I think they have some kind of synagogue. So I, I don't know how you know what it means, how active it is, what it means to be an active member of a Karaite synagogue. I don't know how many there are. There's one, there's one central one in Yerushalayim somewhere, I think. And I don't, might be some satellite ones. It, it, it's kind of a shadow. It, it used to be kind of in the Gaonic period, medieval period, even the early, even the Renaissance period, the 16th century. There used to be uh, a formidable. Like, like today's reform, they used to be a, a major competitor with rabbinic Judaism. We find uh, the great rabbi, the great traditional rabbis of the, tw- of the 16th century fought pitch battles against the Karaites. They wrote you know, long polemics uh, trying to ex- excommunicate them and trying to, trying to kind of highlight the divisions. And they, they, they passed bans on marrying Karaites. So they, they, they used to be seen as a major threat and a major competitor for the hearts and minds 
for, for the hearts and minds of, uh, of, of Jewry. And they, 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 they had money, they had, they had adherence, they had power. Over the years, they, they faded away, so they're still around, but they're, 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 they still have maybe a shul or something, but, but they're, they're kind of a tiny shadow of their former self. I think I, I remember a while ago that in Los Angeles there are a small group of them affiliating with conservatives. Ah, okay. So then they, they, may, they may still have presences in other cities as well, in Los Angeles, uh, Lewis says, perhaps, and they may affiliate with other non-Orthodox denominations. It's an interesting mix, Karaites and conservatives. I guess they're both not Orthodox. I, we, we can explore, I guess, you have to explore what the similarities in theology might be. Uh, conservatism is a, a lot of their ideas are about flexibility, are about the idea that Judaism can evolve and, and, and adapt to fit the times more than orthodoxy allows. Karaites, I don't know that they believe that, but I guess they found some kind of uh, modus vivendi out there. Right, and the, the Karai one, that one in Jerusalem, I think, is their kind of the, the world headquarters of uh, kind of of Karai Jewry. So this, so this, this Pirkoi Ben Baboy, who was a, a rabbinic scholar in the, in the time of the Gaonim, he apparently he wrote a, a major polemic against against Karaiism in his time, and one of the points he discusses is this issue of war on Shabbos, and he says. You learn from the Torah and from biblical history in the time of the Nevi'im, time of King Shoal and Davina Melech and all the kings of Israel. They fought long wars, extended campaigns against Plishtim, against Edom and Ammon and Moab. And they, the campaigns lasted for, for many days and months, he says. And uh, six months uh, campaign of Yoav was. And they were surrounded by enemies. Of course, they didn't stop on Shabbos. They would have been wiped out if they would have just laid down their arms on Shabbos. They, that, 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 that's completely implausible, he said. Of course, Jews fought on Shabbos. The, 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 there was a fascinating and a little understood historical event, though, that, that did occur uh, in the time of Hanukkah, the time of the Hashmanaim, that the contemporary, the early accounts we have of some of the stories of the Hashmanaim, say for Amakabim and say for Hashmanaim, some of the early Jewish historical accounts of that period mention different versions of a story in which there were Jews who were fleeing the religious persecution of the Greeks before the Hashmonai revolt, when, 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 the, when the boot of the, the German oppressor was, was, was on the necks of the Jews and they were forcing them to, to abandon the Torah and to violate the mitzvahs. So the Jews were desperate to try to keep the Torah. So it says there was a group of up to a thousand refugees, a thousand people who had fled from the areas, the central areas under Greek control, and they, they, they hit, and they went out to the desert where they could practice Judaism unmolested. They were tracked down, they were caught, they, 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 were, they were seeking refuge in a cave. So the Greek commander said to them, come out and do the king's bidding, you know, do violate the Torah. And they said, no, we won't do that. And the Greeks said, we're, we're going to attack you, we're going to wipe you out. And they said, uh, they said, no, they said, we're going to... They said, we're going to, uh, it's, it's too bad. They said, we're not going to do that, and they wouldn't even fight. According to the, according to the Sefer HaMakamim, they would, according to the Sefer HaMakamim, they, they, would, they, 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 would, they, would, they would not even fight. They said, it's Shabbos, we're not going to fight, we're, 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 we just won't do this. And according to, according to the text of the Sefer HaMakamim, it says they, they refused to even you know, fight back, they refused to throw missiles and projectiles at the enemy. The enemy came in and wiped them out. Missiles, in, the, in, in traditional English usage, meant a, 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 a projectile with kinetic energy, something hurled, a slingshot, you know, throws a missile. Today, missile is used to mean a rocket-powered uh, technological projectile, but missiles used to, be, used to mean basically things that were thrown in a warlike manner, I think, at, at an enemy. So, 
and they were all wiped out. And then when uh, Matasio, the, the the hero of Hanukkah, when Matasio heard what had happened, he said, "We can't do this. If we if, if we don't stand up to the enemy, then the enemy will destroy us, and there will be nothing left of the nation of uh, the nation of Israel and the Torah. We have to fight back." And he organized the the Hashmonai revolt, which which the victory of which was the was was one of the great miracles of Hanukkah. So historians, Jewish historians, other historians are very puzzled by the story. Is it really true that until the time, until Matasio made this great declaration, the, the halacha was, Jewish policy was, they wouldn't fight, they, they wouldn't fight because it was Shabbos. They said, we're not going to go out and fight because it's Shabbos and we will not desecrate the Shabbos and we're not going to fight. Is this really true that, that Matasio said, no, we have to fight, it's, uh, we, we, can't, we, can't, we can't just let ourselves be massacred like this. Is it really true that, that, that you can't fight back on, uh, on Shabbos? Is that really the halacha? As we covered in previous weeks, uh, it's, an explicit, it's an explicit Gemara and Chazal and Midrashim and Bavli and Yushalmi. You do fight on Shabbos. The Gemara says that war is fought even on Shabbos. And specifically, Yericho, according to Chazal, occurred on Shabbos. The war in general is done on Shabbos. So what exactly didn't they know in the Sefer HaMakabim? What did those people not know? Were they simply uh, ignorant? Were they, what happened there exactly? Hard to know. Nobody really knows for sure. In uh, in the Sefer Doris Rishonim by, by Halevi, the, the great Jewish, great traditional Jewish historian of the 19th century, he writes there that the it wasn't a situation of war at all. There was no army. There, there, there was no there was no organized revolt. This was at the very beginning of the the, the nadir, I guess, of the of the of the Greek oppression. These weren't warriors. These were simply pious people who were stuck in a cave. They had no military capacity. They, they had they had no ability to, to, to resist in any meaningful way against against the Greeks. It wasn't a choice. We're not going to fight. Even though it says we're not going to fight, it meant you know, it, it would have been a futile gesture, throwing a stone at the Greeks. They're armored men and in their swords. They could have made could have maybe offered token resistance, but in practice, they they had no capacity to fight. They had no capacity to do anything. So they, it wasn't really a decision, he says, not to fight. They, they, had, no, they had no option for fighting. They had no capacity. They weren't organized. But as he always said, we have to organize. We, we, have to, we have to develop the Jews into a fighting force to resist the Greeks. Otherwise, Judaism is in the Am Yisrael and the terrorist Israel is in big trouble. But it, it wasn't a decision. It wasn't really a decision not to fight. Uh, also, the fact, that, the fact that they wouldn't uh, go out and do the Greek spitting, the fact that they wouldn't agree to do the Averis, to eat non-kosher food and so on, that was because even though we know that Bechai Bahem, normally, we're Mechal, normally we, we violate almost all mitzvahs, except Avodah and Gilei normally we violate most mitzvahs in the Torah in order to avoid death, but this was called the Shas Hashmat. One of the great exceptions was if there is a deliberate, organized, conscious attempt to tear Torah away from the Jewish people, Akira Sadas, to uproot Torah and to uproot the mitzvah observance from the Jewish people, then you have to give up your life even for other mitzvahs. If there's a, if there's a, if there's a concerted attempt to, 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 to take Jews away from the Torah, then you give up your life even for ordinary mitzvahs. And that's what they were doing. They were saying, this is a shas hashmad, we, we have to give up our lives. With regard to the, the not, not, order, not offering military resistance, so the, 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 this, this was proposed by Halevi and by Ramoshit Tzvi Neria, uh, founder of Ne'akiva, one of the founders of uh, what they call the founders of Kippah Sruga Orthodoxy. He was. Uh, he said that, 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 that of course, they, 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 we, can't, we can't derive any real halacha from this story. In this story, they were they, were, they simply weren't a military force. They, they, they weren't capable of offering any meaningful resistance. But of course, everyone always knew that you have to fight back if your life is in danger. If you're attacked, even on Shabbos, as the Gemara says, you fight back because your life is in danger. Even even Yericho, they they, they they fought on Shabbos. Now there, is, there actually is a very interesting uh, debate among the poskim. 
The Gemara says, Ad that we fight wars even on Shabbos. The question is, I mean, we just said before, the Torah says that a person is supposed to, if the person is able to and supposed to violate mitzvahs to save his life in general, Pikuach Nefesh overrides most halachas in the Torah. Why is it even a chiddush? I don't know what the, I don't know what they did in the time of the Chashmonim, but why is it even a chiddush that a person fights on Shabbos? If you're under attack, of course you fight on Shabbos. Uh, otherwise, you're going to die. I mean, it's Pikuach Nefesh. You drive to the hospital on Shabbos. You fight back on Shabbos. Why is that even a terrorist attack to shul on Shabbos? Of course, you mechal Shabbos to stop him. Otherwise, the Jewish people are going to die. Yes. If you're attacking the enemy, they could have said that. Say that again? If, if you're attacking the enemy, you get to decide what you're doing. Right. pointing out that sometimes you have a choice. You can decide whether to attack or not. You can break off the fight. You can you can continue the siege for another day. And who said you have to choose? If if you have the initiative, if you have a choice, then then who said you have to attack? So that that's the approach taken by. That's very good. That's the approach taken by some of them. Some of the some commentaries. That's how they understand the Gemara. They understand when the Gemara says Adridita, you can fight even on Shabbos, like Yericho. They meant it's when you have a choice. You don't have to fight on Shabbos. You can break off the campaign. You can retreat. You can just not prosecute the attack on Shabbos. You can just uh, continue in a, continue uh, camping there until after Shabbos. The the Rivash, the, the Rivash, the, the, one of the Rishonim makes this point really and briefly. He says when the Gemara says that you can fight even on Shabbos, he says that means that you can prosecute the war even when it's not an issue of Sakana. That that's the drasha ad ridita filu b'shabbos. You can you can prosecute a war against the enemy even on Shabbos, even when there's no danger, either because you can wait or you can break off the battle or whatever it is. Even though there's no danger of of sakana, nevertheless, it's a it's a specific hatter of ad ridita. Assuming you began the campaign before Shabbos, or three days before Shabbos, in some cases even closer to Shabbos, assuming that the, the campaign is was, was started by Ofen Hetzer, you can continue to prosecute the campaign even on Shabbos, because that's a special Hetzer of Adridita, even when life is not at their stake. So on the one hand, we find in the time of the Chashmonaim, it seems they wouldn't even fight even when the lives were at stake. That's hard to understand, and that, that may have been a misunderstanding or just ignorance or something. On the other hand, Rivash goes in the opposite direction. He says the, the Hetzer of Adridita, the, the dispensation to, to fight wars on Shabbos is even when lives are not at stake, even when there's no danger, nevertheless, there's a heter to, to fight on Shabbos. The Sfasemes, the Sfasemes was one of the, one of the leaders of the Ger Hasidus, a great Talmud Chacham and a great, uh, both in, in Halacha and in Hashkafa, he, he was famous for his uh, ideas in Jewish thought, but he was also, a, he also wrote a beloved commentary on, on parts of Shas, and, and he was a Halachist as well. He writes again, obviously when the Gemara gives us a heter of Adridita, Ad Riddita, it's not uh, tell, telling us about Pikuach Nefesh. Otherwise, that's Pasha, too. You don't need a, you don't need a special hetter for that. We, we, we're always Mechal Shabbos for Pikuach Nefesh. He says again, the, 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 the Pasuk is telling you that the, we're in control. We're, we're not going to suffer if we don't fight on Shabbos. But he says what it means is that the, our campaign will falter. If we, if, we don't, if we don't pursue our advantage, 
then the, we'll lose the opportunity to, uh, to accomplish whatever military objective we have of conquering the city. That's the hatter. You're not going to be in immediate danger, but, you, but, but you're going to lose the, the window of opportunity to capture the city, whatever it is. If you, if you have the momentum right now, whatever the reason is, it has to be done now. If you don't do it, you won't be in danger, but your military objectives won't, won't succeed. That's the hatter of Adridita that the Torah allows you to continue on Shabbos if it means the, if, it mean, if otherwise it means that, that you won't be able to, to accomplish your military objective. Shlomo Gurren. Shlomo Gurren was the, was the, was the head of the military rabbinate for a while in Israel, later the chief rabbi. He, he was the, he was a you know, brilliant and creative thinker, also somewhat controversial, but in some ways, in some circles, but he was, uh, he was particularly interested in his capacity as a military rabbi in questions of, of halacha and the, mil- and the military, the modern military in Israel. What can we do? What can't we do? He also adopts this general approach that the heter of Ad Riddita is not based on pikuach nefesh. It's, uh, it goes well beyond pikuach nefesh. He says, you know, you don't need, pikuach nefesh is a, is a regular heter of v'chai uh, that you don't have to give the, that you don't have to risk lives for mitzvahs. But this is a separate heter. He says, following in general the footsteps of the of the Rivash and the Spasemis, this is a hatter that's not based on V'chai Bahem. Even when it's not an issue of Sakana, he says, that, that you're able to engage in certain military activities, as, as long as it's a legitimate war, you can engage in certain military activities, even when it's not a matter of life and death. Following this approach, some Postkim actually wanted to allow things like uh, taking care of the, of the, of the dead, or removing the fallen from the battlefield on Shabbos, even if that involves Malacha, or even just doing, just doing things that normal soldiers would do in a military camp, which are not literally directly matters of life and death. They want to cook, they want to make uh, tea on Shabbos. These types of things where Chaibaham wouldn't allow that, uh, not making tea or removing a fallen comrade from the battlefield, that's not Pekuach Nefesh. I mean, he's unfortunately passed away already. So nevertheless, there are some who argue that following Rav Gurren, that, that, if the, that the, the, this new hatter of Adridita is not based on Pekuach Nefesh, it's a separate hatter to fight wars on Shabbos in certain circumstances, and anything involved in the war, even if it's not directly a matter of survival, would be mutter. That's a major extension of the, uh, that, that is an extension of the Rivash and the Svasemis. Svasemis just says, if you don't do this, the, we're talking about if you don't do this, the campaign will falter and the military objectives will not be, will not be attained. The Rivash says that where you know, things that are tzarche or things that are necessary for prosecution of the battle, I don't know, if removing fallen soldiers or if uh, making tea is considered a, a, an important part of the, of, of the battle itself, but it's hard to know how far the Rivash would go. Anyway, the, the general idea a number of these posts can say is that the Heter of Adridita is not the same Heter of V'chai Bahem. V'chai Bahem is a general Heter that we're allowed to, we set aside mitzvahs and averas, Phil Shabbos, eating non-kosher, when lives are at stake, we eat on Yom Kippur if lives are at stake, when Chal Shabbos if lives are at stake, that's a general Heter. And the Heter of War on Shabbos is a new Heter, even in cases where lives are not at stake, there, there is a Heter. What exactly the scope of the Heter is, is it only things that are necessary to avoid having to give up our military objectives, is it anything that normal soldiers do exactly what the hatter is, is less clear, but, but there are posts who say that, that, that there are certain terrorists. So again, we have Mikatz el from one extreme to the other, we have the Rafsadia Gon who claims Yericho they did not fight on Shabbos, we have the, the Garites and, and, and who say you can't fight on Shabbos, we have the Sefer HaMakabim which relates the early Hanukkah sources which claim that at some point in history it seems like Jews were not fighting on Shabbos. On the other hand, we utterly reject Karite theology, and we say that Jews historically did fight on Shabbos, and the Sefer HaMakabim was either some kind of misconception or it was uh, not a military context at all, there was no capable fighting force. We certainly say you do fight on Shabbos, certainly when lives are at stake. 
And even when lives are not at stake, there are sources that, in, in some circumstances, fighting on Shabbos is permitted. Exactly what those circumstances are are a little bit unclear, and that's the subject of some debate. Let's move on now in, in Yoshua. We continue through Perik Vav. So we are at or around Pasuk Yudzayin. So, so again, the first half of the Perik was uh, Hashem gave Yoshua instructions for, for this ritual of the marching around and the shofaris. The, the, next, the next bunch of Sukkim describes the actual uh, performance of this ritual. And then uh, on, on the seventh day, Yeshua gave them the, the instructions for this final day. He said, you're going to do seven circuits, and then you're going to blow Kalanam to blow the shofaris. And, after the, and, and then you know, after the Kalanam did that, it says, Yeshua gave, told the people, now, now is the time. Hariyu, you should cry. In Pasuk Tezayin, it says, Hariyu, now cry out. Hashem has now uh, placed the city into your hands. Pasuk Yudzayin, the Pasuk says, the city shall be... Cherem is a tough word to translate. Cherem means a number of different... has a number of different overlapping meanings in, 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 in Hebrew, Biblical and Rabbinic Hebrew. They translate Cherem as devoted. Interesting translation. Uh, the most popular use of Cherem today means a ban. To place somebody in Cherem means to place somebody under the ban. We speak about the Cherem of Rebbeinu Gershom, the ban of Rebbeinu Gershom. In the Torah, Cherem refers to kind of the way they translate it as a kind of hectish, devoting something to Hashem. There are two kinds of cherems. Some kind I learned this is a cherem for Bedekabayas, where it's a form of hectish, where you donate things to the to, to, to the Mesamikdash, the cherem for the Mesamikdash. The other kind of cherem is the other kind of cherem is a cherem Kahanim, where you donate things to the to the Kahanim as like an op, as like a optional form of truma of truma, where you give them a pr- property that goes to the Kahanim. So Yeshua said the city shall be cherem which means that they were not supposed to take it. It says that, 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 that they were not allowed to take it for themselves. It was, it was, it was, it was supposed to be consecrated and uh, dedicated to Hashem. So nobody should derive benefit from it. It should be just left there. We'll discuss why soon. But the cheira means it, was, uh, it would not be spoils of war. It would not be taken by the soldiers or the people. It was going to be, everything in the city should be left, consecrated to Hashem. The only one to, that, that will spare, we're not going to wipe out and destroy and leave for Hashem, is Rachel Hazona. She was the one, of course, who helped the, the Jews, helped the spies back in Perik Beis. As they promised her, all the people, her family, who she took into the house with her, because in gratitude and, and re- recompense to her for hiding the, the emissaries, the spies that we sent, therefore we're leaving her alone and the rest of the city becomes Cherem. Yeah, so if, 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 someone, if someone sins, he, he's placed in cherem, which is a kind of a combination of a curse and a ban. So the, the ban is uh, he's, he's socially ostracized, people can't sit within four amas of him, he, he has to adopt certain practices of an avel, he takes off his filling, Mara says, and he takes off his shoes, and he, he does certain things like an avel. He's considered in, in disgrace before God and before, and before humanity, before society. Um, it, it's, supposed to, it's supposed to be a form of punishment and or a form of pressure. Sometimes it was done as a punishment for, uh, for a sin someone committed. Sometimes it was done as, uh, as pressure to put pressure on someone to comply with, uh, with the demands of the terror or the demand. In, in, in this case, though, it's, it's a kind of different use of the word cherem. It just means, uh, in, 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 in Tarash Buxav, in Chumash, cherem sometimes means like a form of hectish. Something was given over, consecrated to Hashem. And it's, it's, it's a tough word to translate. It has, the, it has the, these various meanings, which are... 
Yeah, I'm assuming that the, the that that the scholars of Hebrew language will somehow will explain what the kind of common denominator, what the what the common theme of all these different types of harem are. This type of harem, it seems, was primarily right, not necessarily about hell or about curses. This one seems to be primarily about a a, a, a hectish for Hashem. So. And then Patrick Yerches, he warns them again, he said, he, he gives more detail, he says, you, be, you make sure you follow this rule, guard yourself from taking from the cherem, pentachrimu, again, pentachrimu left, you become cherem, meaning you become destroyed or punished, well, we'll see, there was going to be one terrible, tragic story where one man named Achan did violate the cherem, he, he pilfered some, some valuables for himself, he, he was caught, he confessed, and then he was executed. So the pentachrimu means lest you shall be uh, destroyed and uh, if, if you take of acherim. The samtem esmachne Yisrael acherim ba'achartemo. So if you take from the acherim, then again, then you, you will be pentachrimu. You'll place the camp of Israel into a state of acherim, a ruin. You know, they, they, they translate acherim several different ways. The original acherim they translate as devoted. Pentachrimu, they say, make yourself condemned. Uh, here, they say, make the camp of Israel a ruin. So again, Cherem has these various shades of meaning. The, the stuff is consecrated, don't take it. If you do take it, you'll be personally in, in a bad state of Cherem. The, the camp of Israel will find itself in a bad, in a bad uh, state of Cherem. And again, he winds up his instructions. He says, All the vessels of silver, of gold, all the vessels of, of copper and iron, Kodesh Ulashem, are all sang- Kodesh is clear, Kodesh, we know what Kodesh means usually, uh, Kodesh Ulashem. Kodesh also ironically has uh, some wildly different shades of meaning. The normal use of Kedusha, the way we use it in davening all the time, and the normal Shabbos Kodesh, the way we use it all the time, is holy. But uh, Kodesh also can refer to a harlot, a whore. It, it says in, in Pashas Vayeshev, it says there was a Kedesha. Uh, Yehuda encountered a Kedesha, which means a prostitute of some sort. Uh, and elsewhere in Naka talks about the, the Kedeshos, who were, some say they were sacred prostitutes, they had some kind of uh, religious uh, promiscuity. But yeah, so Kedesha also has some very funny, uh, it says, it says, Losia Kedesha Mibnos Yisrael, Losia Kedesha Mibnos Yisrael. Jewish men and women are commanded, are, are prohibited from being Kedeshos, which means also some kind of prostitution, some kind of sacred or other. So the word Kodesh, uh, uh, about Kilayim, the Torah says, a certain type of Kilayim, Kilayak Kerem, where you plant vines and wheat together, that's a, you can't plant, other species you can't plant together either, wheat and, bar, wheat and barley and so on, but specifically with regard to grain and vines, grain and grapes, it says Pentuktash, don't do it, Pentuktash, which means because I'll say it means it'll have to be burned, it's condemned to Kadesh, it'll have to be burned in fire. So the word Kodesh and Kadesh also has a variety of meanings, aside from the common holy one, but here, here certainly it means that all the silver and gold and copper and iron vessels should all be Kodesh Hashem, consecrated for Hashem, Otsra Hashem Yavo, they shall be brought to the storehouse, the treasure house of, of Hashem, and don't take anything for yourself. So these were Yeshua's final instructions before the... Before the for the actual events within the next Pesachim, the next time we meet, hopefully we'll do that. From Pesach we're going to read about the actual destruction of Yericho. These were Yeshua's final instructions, what to do on the seventh day after the Kohanim had marched around, cry out, and then, and then you'll see that the, 
that the walls miraculously collapsed and they invaded the city and destroyed the city. So, so one, one obvious and basic question here is, Yeshua gave a whole set of instructions here about making the city cherem and so on and so on. Where did that all come from? Throughout the first five and a half prakim of Yeshua we've done so far, we've had many cases where Hashem told Yeshua XYZ, and then Yeshua told the people XYZ. There have been many cases, prepare for battle, three days, march around Yericho and so on, cross the Arden. In all these cases we saw that Hashem first told Yeshua, this is what you shall do. Yeshua then relayed the instructions to the people via Shotrim or by himself. He, he, he conveyed the instructions to the people. This is what Hashem says. This is what you should do. And here also, Yoshua, Hashem gave Yeshua the instructions about the Shofaros. That was the first half of the parak from, from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk through Pasuk uh, through Pasuk Tess. Um, I'm sorry. From, from, from Pasuk Aleph through Pasuk Hey was the instructions of Hashem. Then Pasuk Vav through Vav Zayin Ches, Ches was what was, was, was and then Yud was Yeshua's instructions to the people. Then then, then it describes what, what they did, and then it says on the seventh day. Then it says that on, the, on, the, on the seventh day Yeshua began giving these instructions, which included the sole discussion of the Cherub. Where did that come from? We find Yeshua's instructions. To, we find Hashem's instructions to Yeshua about the seven days and the Shofaros, but we don't find anything about this Cherub. So where did this Cherub come from? So there is a major debate here in, among the commentaries, among Chazal, going back to Chazal already. Did Yeshua do this of his own initiative, or did Yeshua have a nevuah, and he, which the Pasuk neglects to mention, but Yeshua actually had a nevuah to say this? So the Radak says, Yes? Right. So, Right. Right. Simcha's making a very good point that the the Torah doesn't always give us every single detail about a story that we would know, and particularly about Hashem's communications with His Nevi'im. They're not always told to us. Sometimes we have to infer them from context. So the example Simcha gives is that when Yaakov left Lavan's house in Parshas Vayetze. He gathers his wives and he says, we need to leave. Sorry, two out of his four wives. He gathers two out of his four wives, uh, Rachel and Leah, and he says, we have to leave. And he tells them that I had a vision from Hashem and I, and I was told to leave. The Torah hasn't earlier related that vision. Yaakov wasn't making it up, obviously, so there was a vision that the Torah doesn't relate that Yaakov now mentions to his wives. He, he tells us about a vision that he had, which the Torah doesn't specify. So here, Yeshua does not say he had this vision from Hashem, that Hashem, Hashem told me to tell you that we should put the city in Cairo. But nevertheless, the, the Radak... The dream wasn't that... the, oh, the dream wasn't that. Right, so, so the, the, the dream that he had was the, 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 was, was the mating of the sheep and the, the coloring of the sheep, the, that the... He, he dreamed about the sheep, but the, not necessarily the dream was that he should leave, but the... But he, 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 he relates, I don't remember all the details of the story there, but he relates, at least, at least part of what he relates to Rachel and Leah was something the Torah had not earlier related, but he himself was revealing it for the first time. So, so here as well, the Radak says that, you know, that Hashem, his, his opinion is he wouldn't be inclined to the view Hashem did actually instruct Yeshua to place a city in Cairo. Yeshua would not have made such a major command with several psukim, Cairo and Hashem, and you'll be punished, and so on. The Radak feels that... Uh, 
he's inclined to the view Yeshua would not have made such a, taken such a major step on his own initiative. So, so it must be that Hashem did tell Yeshua, even though it doesn't mention, even though it doesn't mention that in the Pesukim. And he says, Yimtu Kamo Rab. He says, we find many examples like this, as Simcha was saying also, we find many examples like this where the, not all the details are mentioned, not all the communications of Hashem to his Navi are mentioned. We find sometimes the, we have to infer it from context, even though it isn't mentioned specifically. But then he says, the Chazal say that Yeshua did say it on his own initiative. The Chazal disagree with him. Chazal, he concedes, the Chazal say that Yeshua said this on his own. He brings, this is a Midrash in, in the Midbar Rabbah, it's also in the Talmud Yushalmi. It says that there are three things that based in Shalmata, the, the court on this world, the people, people on the, people on our, uh, people on, or, ordinary people in the, in the, or, 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 ordinary people made, made these, uh, made Zerus and Hashem, Hashem agreed to them. There's a, there's a, uh, there, there's a Gemara in Makas that says that there were three things Three Xeris that were made by Basin Shalmata, a terrestrial Basin, Beskimu Basin Shalmala al Yadam. Basin Shalmala agreed. The, the, the Babli's version of the three things does not include this, this harem of, uh, of, of Yericho. It includes three other things. It says, reading the Megillah, it says, Kimu Vikiblu, Chazal Darshan, that they accepted on high what Mordechai and Esther and Basin Shalmata decreed down on earth. That was initially done by Basin Shalmata, but Hashem endorsed it. Sheila Shalom, the shame that they would greet each other by Hashem's name, that Boaz told the Kotzrim, Hashem Imachem, that uh, he greeted them with Hashem's name, and later Amalek said to Gidon, Hashem Imachagibar Achayel, that the Shemayim endorsed what he did, another Takana. So the Babli gives three other, three other examples of, uh, three other examples of what the Basin Shalmata did, and the Basin Shalmala agreed. But there, but 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 there is there is a midrash in Bamid Baraba that says that there were three things. That, that in the Talmud, the Talmud Yushalmi says that there were three things, I didn't have a chance to look up the Yushalmi, but the Yushalmi also brings a version of this tradition, that there were three uh, significant decisions that were taken by Beis and Shalmata that Beis and Shalmata agreed, and one of them was Kharma Shal Yericho. The Yushalmi has a different list, apparently, at least one item on the list is different, and that is Kharma Shal Yericho. Bamid Baraba also says, this Kharma of Yericho explicitly says Yeshua did it on his own, the Hiskim Akash Baruch Hu Ayyadu Akash Baruch Hu agreed. How do we know that, uh, that, 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 how do we know Hashem agreed? It infers it from the Pasuk, from one of the Psukim, that Hashem agreed that the, that, that, uh, that, 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 that in first in the circum that Hashem agreed to what Yeshua had done. Why did Yeshua decide to make the city to make the city into a chair? What was the what was the thinking here? So the Midrashim Chazal give a number of reasons. Not all entirely easy to understand. They give a number of reasons, uh, kind of intriguing reasons. One of them is they said because the city was conquered on Shabbos, as we said, the, the dominant approach in Chazal is that it was conquered on Shabbos. So they said that because Shabbos is a special day, Shabbos is a holy day. The, the Radak says he brings from Chazal. That he says, the Shabbos lachadnu Yericho, we we conquered it, we captured the city on Shabbos. For Shabbos Kodesh, Shabbos is of course Shabbos Kodesh. Shall we, that we always say Shabbos Kodesh, Kodesh Yilachem. The Torah describes Shabbos as Kodesh for us. So what we capture should be Kodesh also. That's why he said Kodesh Lashem, Ot Rashem Yavo, should be holy for Hashem. There's another reason the Radak bring Chazal say that it was a form of truma. Truma means that when, that when you uh, 
Truma means, or like challah, the, 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 when a woman when a woman when a woman makes uh, makes bread. Anyone makes bread, commonly a woman. When she when, when she uh, when she makes bread, she takes it off a little bit uh, at, at the beginning, designates it for Hashem. It used to be given to the kohen. Today, in Chutzlar, it's for We burn it. But the so Yeshua said, well, when we conquer the, the land of Israel, we'll take off a little bit from the beginning. The first city we conquer, which is Yericho, we'll consecrate that for Hashem as a form of as a form of challah. They, the, 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 the Midrash apparently has a third reason. I'm looking at secondhand sources here, but the, the Radak only brings these two reasons. The Midrash has a third reason, apparently. They consider the city like an Irani Dachas, a city full of uh, idol worship. I'm not sure why it would have been more of an Irani Dachas than every other city in Canaan. They were all apparently uh, steeped in paganism and Toevas, the Torah, he says, but maybe Yericho is worse. We'll discuss more about that in a moment. So they treated Irani Dachas as a parish in the Torah. If you find a city that where idol worship is endemic throughout the city, not only do you kill the, the worshippers, you also burn all the property of the city. We just exterminate the whole thing, root and branch, so we burn the property of the city. So they wanted to consecrate the property of the city to Hashem. The Ralbag has a fascinating, really fascinating explanation of why, they, why, they, why Yeshua decreed that they shouldn't plunder the city. Ultimately, he also says because Yericho is somehow more pagan, more idolatrous than other cities. But he has a very curious explanation. He says, Yeshua was concerned that if people would have taken stuff from the city, animals, tools, weapons, and then they would have gone on to fight in Canaan, and they would have continued to be successful because Hashem was helping them, they might have attributed the success to the property they took from Yericho. They might have thought that because Yericho was a powerful, religiously powerful city, there was a blessing and success was somehow uh, vested in these materials, and they might, have, they, they, they might have been inclined to believe, even though they had just conquered Yericho, they had just destroyed the city. You'd think that would have indicated that... Uh, that, that, that their God was stronger than, than Yericho's God, but somehow the people would have been so twisted in their beliefs that they would have thought that... that you, what? Both what? That it was the... That was Yeah, maybe they thought it was Hashem was powerful and Yericho's gods were powerful, Hashem was stronger, but Yericho's gods were helping them also, maybe, I don't know. Karl Bag says, because there was a concern that they would think... Yeah, they destroyed, they destroyed the, the idols themselves. They would have destroyed, yeah, but the gods somehow you know, live beyond the idols. Maybe they thought the gods are spiritual things. So that somehow they would have thought that the, if, they, if they used the property of Yericho, they might have attributed their future success to the property of Yericho. And Hashem wanted to make sure they didn't do that. He says, combined with the fact that Yericho, the, the, he says Yericho was, was, was worse than the other... Uh, and the, than, than, the, than the rest of Eretz Canaan. So he says, notes, he says, no, nothing should be left of Yericho. Nothing should be, we're not going to take anything from them. It's all abhorrent. So we want nothing to do with anything from Yericho. So we, we're going to we'll destroy everything from Yericho. There's a story in Malachim, I forget which king it was. It says that one of the kings, he, uh, he, he fought a war against one of the other nations, Ammon or Edom or somebody. And when he won, he actually adopted the gods of the people that he just conquered. And he, and he became an Ovid of Odazara. So the Chazal, I think, took him themselves, or Chazal are very critical of him. They say, you know, how stupid, how stupid can you be? Your God, Hashem, just, just gave you victory against the God of the enemies. Hashem showed you that you know, he's, the, he's the God, and, and they lost. He says, now you're adopting their gods. I mean, you want to adopt the victor's gods, I would understand, but adopting the loser's gods, what sense does that make? But people, Avodazar was a powerful force back then, and people sometimes did that as well. So the... So the... So according to the Ralbag, that's why, that's why the, they decided to, be, to make a cherem and, and, and not take anything per, for personal use from the, from, from the, from the city of Yericho.
their process for changing the uh, status of these vessels that they all use for Abhara and making them, you know, dedicating them. And that seems like the kind of thing you couldn't do. So, so, so the question is, can you can you take Avodah and then repurpose it and use it for the base of Mikdash? Or, it's a good question. So normally the rule is, and if you have a Vodazar, it has to be destroyed, it has to be burned, it has to be, uh, you can't use it. A Jew has no power to convert it or rehabilitate it. There is a halacha that an idolater himself has the power to cancel his Avodazar. If, 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 if he sees the light and he says, this is ridiculous, this is no, no longer Avodazar. So the guy himself, the idolater himself, can, can render it, uh, can unavodazar it. But once a Jew gets hold of it, it's too late, he has to destroy it. So sometimes post can recommend if you're buying something from a non-Jew and, and, you, and a cross or a bazaar, you think it might have been used for idolatry, if you can get him to, to be mevatalit, the word is called mevatal, to nullify it like Bittul Hamid, if you can get him to be mevatalit to Vodazara before he, before he buys it, before you buy it from him, that, that could be okay. Once you conquer it, though, it's too late. You, you can't do that anymore. And uh, Right, so in general, any actual Avodazar that they got from Yericho, they probably couldn't use at all, even for the base of Mikdash. If they got other things, they just got you know, drinking vessels and, uh, and just uh, for trinkets and king's crowns and so on, stuff that wasn't actually idolatrous, that kind of thing, they could, the cherem was on that as well. People couldn't take that for personal use, but those kind of things they could still take. There are very, very elaborate rules in, in the Gemara Avodazar and the Shulchanarach what kind of property do you have to assume may have actually been worshipped, if it has religious iconography, crosses, uh, uh, totems, uh, humanoid figures. There's a lot of discussion, painstakingly detailed uh, discussion in about Zara, what kind of symbols, whether for Christianity, whether for paganism, what kind of, uh, what kind of figures and, and statues have to be presumed to be actually idolatrous and what kind not. There's actually a very robust discussion about crucifixes themselves. Some posts can say it's about Azara, other posts can say they don't worship the crucifix. They, the crucifix is a symbol, it's a, it's a, it, it has religious significance for them because it reminds them of, the, of their God, but it's not actually, a, they don't bow down to the crucifix. There's actually some very interesting discussion whether the crucifix itself is considered, we, we tend to be machmer on it, but it's not, it's not entirely clear. <coughs> whether a crucifix itself is a Vodazara. But certainly the actual things they worship, or things they offer for a Vodazara, Takrovis it's called, things they offer as, uh, as an offering to their god is, is Asr, and once a Jew gets it, he can't rehabilitate. Yes? The third what if you accidentally buy the Vodazara and then later you realize it's a Vodazara, so, so, so you get ready to burn it, but, but before you get a chance to burn it, uh, it gets lost and, and the guy finds it and he, and he makes it and it creates it. And the guy who sold it to you finds it. wants to know what happens if a Jew buys a Vodazara? And before he destroys it, uh, he, he, he loses it, a guy, the guy finds it, the, the seller, the one who sold you, finds it, and he's mevatla. The answer is you cannot do that. Once it belongs to the Jew, there, there, there's no solution anymore. There's a fascinating tshuva that I spent a lot of time studying in the tshuva's Beit Shlomo. He talks about a case like this. There was a jeweler who had bought a crucifix, I think, from, a, from some non-Jew. Then he learned it was a problem. He learned that postkim are, many postkim are strict about the crucifixes that are considered a vodazar and he can't use it. Now, you can't just sell it back to the guy. You can't just give it to him and say, once the Jew bought it, it's too late. But he has a very interesting discussion. If, if the sale would be reversed because of, let's say, a latent defect that wasn't disclosed, he, he, he says, uh, it turned out it was broken. 
it turned out it was uh, it was counterfeit. It was you, know, you told me it was gold, really it was tin. You know, so in that case, you would have the right to reverse the sale. You could say just like between two Jews, you buy something it turned out to be a lemon, it turned out to be broken. That's called mechaktos. You get your money back. That you can do if you found out that that, that there was something broken about it, then you can simply re- get a refund for your money. He wants. See, he has a whole discussion. Can he argue that if he didn't realize it was a vodazara, didn't realize <coughs> that as a Jew he can't use it? Is that itself grounds for? Can he ask for a refund from the guy and then have the guy be mavatel and then buy it back? Let's say afterward. He has a whole discussion about that. But but in general, once the Jew gets it, it's too late to mavatel it. That applies to vodazara per se. But the, the rest of the spoils of war, even if they were property of pagans, the property doesn't become usher because it wasn't actually worship. Oh my goodness! Oh my goodness! In, in, in Hebrew, in Hebrew letters. Wow. He, he said he, did, he was on a bridge in Europe with had religious symbols and statues on it. One of them was one of them was Yeshu, the, the god of the Christians, on the cross where he was killed, which is a major symbol of their religion. Underneath it said Kadosh, 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 Hashem Tzvakos in Hebrew letters. Yeah, so that's the, the, the Rabbah has another reason why they <coughs> why they uh, destroyed Yericho, and that he says was essentially as a form of terrorism. He says that they they wanted to make an example of Yericho. He says in order to uh, dishearten, to destroy the morale of the rest of the Gaim, we're not just going to be victorious in battle. We're going to we're going we're gonna to make the whole city into a into a harem. We're going to nothing's going to be left. We're going to raise the city. I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure why. I'm not sure why again. I'm not sure why giving the stuff to Hashem, as opposed to letting the soldiers take it to themselves, would be more scarier to the other inhabitants. You know, the fact that they killed everyone, they were going to do anyway. The Torah says the fact that the, they were going to they were going to be maktish it all for Hashem instead of letting people soldiers plunder it and give it to the people. I'm not sure why that was such a threat. But the Rabbah argues that the particularly draconian rules regarding Yericho was because of a, uh, essentially as a form of terrorism. This is an idea that the Rolbag has in other places as well. It's a little uh, disturbing maybe from uh, a modern Western perspective, but at the very beginning of Shoftim, it talks about a battle that they fought against one of the vestiges of, of, of Canaan. It says they fought against someone named Adoni Bezek, a king named Adoni Bezek. And it says they, they vanquished him and they captured him. And it says and when they caught him, they cut off all his fingers and toes, uh, the, the fingers and toes, I think, or something like that. And then he died. So some of the Mepharshim are a little puzzled by this. We don't really, Judaism doesn't really torture prisoners. We don't find this in other wars that they, that they did. Why do they do this? So the Mepharshim are for different reasons, but the Rabag says essentially it was a form of terrorism. It was, a, it, was, it was meant to send a message, don't try to fight us. You'll, you'll, you'll be destroyed. Not only will you be destroyed, we will, uh, we, will, we, will, we will do these types of things to you if we catch you. So it was meant to be, not because we enjoy being cruel, but the point is that we wanted to demoralize them and stop them from fighting. Essentially terrorism. It's a state terrorism. It's a little disturbing. You know, we, we, we have, we, the modern ethics say that there's such a thing as the laws of war, and you can't just uh, inflict, uh, you, you have to treat prisoners of war in a uh, humane way. You can't just torture them in the hope that this will discourage future people from fighting. It's against the modern laws of war. Malbim actually makes that point. He says that this is a little disturbing. He says it doesn't seem to be consistent with the, the ethics of war. But the Rolbag says it was essentially meant as a cold calculation. 
not because we enjoy being cruel, but because we want to send a message that uh, do not resist and, and we want to discourage, limit the fighting as much as possible. Okay. Anyway, so for, for a variety of reasons, for, 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 any, of these, uh, for, for any of these possible reasons, the, the Midrash's reasons, the Ralbag's reasons, they made the special cherem of uh, they, they they made they they made the they they, they made this cherem against Yericho. There was also another another special law they made about Yericho. We'll get to that I think, and we'll get to that maybe later in the Pesukim. There, there was another special unique unique uh, edict that Yeshua promulgated about Yericho, and that was that nobody could build Yericho. Yericho should never be rebuilt. Actually, according to Chazal, as Simcha knows, there were actually Two, two rules that he made. What were the two rules about Yericho? Yes. One rule was this city on this site, the historical Yericho, you can never rebuild the city. And another rule was that you could not build any other city anywhere in Eretz Israel. And I think it's limited to Eretz Israel, but you cannot, you cannot build any other city and name it Yericho. Who, who violated that harem? His name was Chiel. In the time of Achav, it says that there was a man named Chiel, hundreds of years later, there was a man named Chiel who did rebuild Yericho. Which one did he do? Did he rebuild Yericho? Did he name another city Yericho? He violated one of these cherems, and the cherem was that anyone who would build Yericho, his children would die. His oldest would die when he laid the foundation, and his youngest would die when he finished it. And sure enough, this person, Chiel, he, he flouted the cherem, and he indeed was punished uh, terribly for it by the death of his children. So the question is, do we know that Yericho of today, Jericho, the, the, the city of the city Yericho today, is that the same Yericho of the, of the Bible? I do not know. I actually don't know. We didn't build it. It's an Arab city. So, yeah, we didn't build it. Uh, today, I don't think Jews live there. Arabs live there, I think. So I don't know. I, I, I once heard that, the, that in general cities in Israel, at least the ones that were built by Israel, were they, they do put some effort into kind of based on archaeology to try to build it at least on or near the cities? I, I, again, I don't know if Yericho was named by us or the Arabs. I don't know if uh, I don't I don't know what it's based on. And the answer is simply that I I do not know. I don't know whether 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 the Yericho of today is is on the same location as the biblical Yericho. The events that we're reading about, how many years? These events go back. Uh, probably, I think about. More than 2,000 years ago, some 2,300 years ago. And Machantara, I think, occurred in the year 2,448, and now we're in the year 5,783. These occurred 40. These events occurred 40 some years after Machantara, so it would have been in the late uh, round, around the year 2,500, and now we're 57. So it's a little more than 2,000 years ago.